Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown With, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Miranda Balin. Hi Miranda, how's things? Hi Kieran, um, very good and I'm very pleased to be here talking to you, that's for sure. It feels like a real treat. And uh, we've just been talking about how uh, creative people have, have found a way to kind of carry on through this period of lockdown, keep making things. Is that something that you've been trying to do at Spark? Definitely. It's something that we've been trying to do, that I've been trying to do, but mostly I would say my team have been absolutely incredible. Um, so we've been, we've still been online and we've still been running drama activities. And of course, <laughs> we've had to learn how to do all of that. And, and the wonders of Zoom in the way that we're connecting today. Um, but actually, it's been very exciting because we've managed to do a couple of quite amazing projects. We were very sad when we found out that we couldn't take a group of young people to Tate. Um, right. We should have gone in May. But they've continued to work on that project with Rachel Clements and our wonderful um, arts worker, um, uh, Anne Corvahouse-Evans, and our amazing digital arts wizard guy, um, and the and the, it's called the Sharabang project, and they've actually managed to convert creating all their characters, and they're starting to create a little animation film. So that's just one example. Um, we did a beautiful um, light mess up the mess. We did the time capsule project, yes. making films. So it's. They have been absolutely mm. incredible in the most difficult of circumstances, and so have the young people we work with. So I'm kind of blown away. And like I said to you, a highlight of my week is I get to be in a creative writing group with um, Beth and Marlowe, um, and an amazing, um, a small, we're a small but beautifully formed group, and we call ourselves the Pencil Breakers now. Fantastic. That's, that's a great thing to do. And, and with that group, just briefly, uh, is there going to be like an end product to that, or is it just purely writing for the sake of having that time to write? Are you trying to create something? With that group, we really want to persuade them to get their voices out there because they are um, um, they are just incredible. Um, But really, we're writing for the love of it right now, Mm. so there's no pressure to do that currently. And that's important as well, isn't it, to have the time to be able to do that? Absolutely, and also to be able to connect together and it's a very equal group I'm just very much one of the writers in that group so yeah that's a real pleasure as well so where I want to start 
freely as well. I always tend to start with these podcasts. And I want to ask you, how did you first get interested in theatre? It was funny because I was having a little think about um, early stuff because I spoke to a group of my um, beautiful applied drama students the other day and I said actually I wasn't like one of these really cool people who you know got into really deep theatre at the beginning if I'm honest like first of all I really danced and I did like I did tap dancing and I did I loved to and I just loved to sort of show off and perform when I was a bit younger and then I was very lucky I had an older brother who was a bit more sensible than me um, and he took me to some quite wild um, little local drama lessons. I didn't really always know what I was doing. They were quite experimental. Um, and I also joined like my local amateur uh, theatre group. And I and I performed with them. But I was always a bit bossy. <laughs> <laughs> so I know there'll be a number of people it, laughing at that. Is, going, really? It, is, um, is that so where you... Is that where you think the kind of interest in directing comes from? I'm afraid so. So I come from a big family. I'm one of 11 kids. And oh, when wow. I, when I was 11, I hired the local hall and I put on a show and I made all of my brothers and sisters and, my, and all my um, friends be in my show. So yeah, I was kind of, I was an early starter, you might say, yeah. And and when did you begin to see it as something that you wanted to do as a career? Well, again, I think that I think that my it's interesting, isn't it, having an older sibling? Because when I was at school, um, my brother went and did drama at, at university, and actually, when I asked my careers teacher if I could do drama, they told me that there was no such thing as a drama course unfortunately because of him I knew that wasn't true Mm. um and I didn't I I I kind of didn't know that really in a big way I suppose at that time I wanted to act yeah um and I and because that's all I really knew um so then I fortunately I was quite stubborn and I said well I know you can do drama and again, I really went back to him and he said to me, you should apply to whole university because he'd gone there and he thought it was the kind of place that I should, that I would enjoy. And actually I went to a couple of different unis and he was absolutely right. As soon as I walked in the hall, I thought that's my kind of course. Um, but quite quickly, I shifted over from being an actor to a director I, I realised that that's what I really loved. Why do you think that shift happened? Was there a moment when you realised that acting wasn't for you, or was it more of a thing of you really loved directing and you wanted to focus on that? I think I... I mean, this might feel a bit counterintuitive if you know me, Kieran, but in some ways I don't think I had, like, the kind of... In a way, when I say ego, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but I think what I really loved is process, right. and I loved the process of theatre. So I wasn't so concerned or interested in in performing and that very specific thing. Yeah. I was more interested in how you make and create theatre. 
and I, it felt like directing was nearer, got me nearer to that. Um, and so, yeah. And I also didn't really like repeating, you know, like when I realised that actors had to go on tour and do these things every night, and I, yeah. I listened with, you know, um, amazement at people who prepare. I, I, I probably just didn't have that patience. I like to kind of make something, create it, and then move on from it a little bit. So that suited me better. I suppose when you're directing something, you put out your vision, you block it, you you hand it over to the actors. You only do that once. You're not having to do that every night. I I no. know what you mean. Exactly, exactly. And, and Maybe you're a bit impatient, Kieran. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you've got like significant experience in theatre and education working in TIE early in your career. How did that kind of shape shape the artist that you went on to become, if you know what I mean? I think I think it was absolutely instrumental. Um and I and I think that it's shaped me in every way, that experience of theatre and education. I mean I was extremely lucky. I came from a time when theatre and education was about people who really, really looked at the kind of deep process around how we make and create work. And I was, I realised that I was really passionate about the idea of working with young people quite early on. I knew I didn't, I wasn't that drawn to traditional theatre, though I love to go and watch it. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, and also at that time, theatre and education was quite sort of politicised and I was really interested in all of the politics around it. Um, was it quite, so, was it quite um, kind of left-leaning, anti, kind of, because I guess the Conservatives were in power at that time, and economically it might have been a bit of a difficult time for the country. So was it, was it like a statement? Was it theatre used to make political do you know what I mean absolutely well I think that's a really interesting distinction in a way because I was very when I was at university I was very drawn to political theatre companies and I actually did my early sort of work on companies like 784 and actually as I was doing the work on those companies they were getting cut um, because that coincided with um, Margaret Thatcher coming into power and one of her first acts um, was to kind of like cut back on the arts. Um, but what was interesting is that in some ways, theatre and education wasn't, although the people who worked in it were uh, unashamedly left-wing, or many of them were, right. um, the, the theatre that they created was a bit more oblique than that. Okay. Um, it did look at, and, it, and the people who I was most interested in didn't necessarily do kind of, if you like, more agitprop or more um, issue-based work. There were companies that did that, but they were people who were really interested in how they could get uh, the, the young people to really focus and concentrate on um, ideas and work. So mm. one of the, the, the people who really influenced me was a, 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 a guy called Jeff Gillum who was instrumental in theatre and education and he would talk about how I don't really want to tell people what to think I'm much more interested in how they think 
and that yeah. and that stayed with mm. me in lots of different ways so not kind of like telling you or propaganda but just encouraging young people to to think more deeply about stuff and that's what really really drew me to it mm. yeah and like forming getting the audience to form their own opinions of the work and and kind of the the touring side of it was that something that you enjoyed i loved it i, th I think i think i'm still one of those people i finally really settled in the valleys but i'm probably happiest in a van with my feet up going somewhere so i think i'm a little bit of a nomad so um i was talking to bethan about this only recently so yeah. i absolutely loved touring i i loved I loved the whole thing. I loved, you know, setting up in different places. I loved visiting different communities. Um, but I think um, when we come on to talk about Spark a little bit, in the end, the thing I didn't love was just as I felt like I was getting to know somebody, I had to leave because I was going to go on to another show. Yeah. So... I started to get more interested in the idea, even though it's not natural for me to stay around. I started to realize that maybe if I was going to find out a bit more about people, I was going to need to stick around mm. a bit longer. And, and try and build a sense of a, a community, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do want to talk to you about how Spark started. So how did you decide to start Spark? Uh, well, I think that came from that exact thing that I've just talked to you mm. about, that I suddenly realised that, that much as I love theatre and education, like just as I would be leaving, say one time we did a beautiful piece and we were looking um, at fostering and a little girl came up to me and said, um, you know, I, I've been fostered and I, I'd like to talk to you about that. And I had to redirect her back to her teacher. Right. And I thought, you know what? That's actually the conversation I want to have. Um, so I was working for a company that actually is still based um, in the, the, the factory where I work now and still going strong called Spectacle Theatre. Right. Um, and, I, and I decided that I... Just, I decided that I would like to. They were looking for someone to do a bit more like youth development work, and that. And what happened was, one of those places was what was then called Panagrai Community Project, which is now part of Valley's Kids. Yeah. And literally, I turned up to do some workshops there, and I walked into this building, which was this old converted chapel. It was crazy, but it was really warm, and there was a real sense of community there. And I can't, it, it's very hard to put my finger on it, but it just did feel like I'd come home. How, how um, much did you know about the area at that point when you started? Did you have a kind of a detailed knowledge about the area and, and the kind of people that you would be working with? Yeah, I knew, I knew about the, I knew about the valleys and I was already working in the valleys because that spectacle were based in the valleys. Right. Um, but I also I also was very um, passionate about the the miners' strike in 1984, and of course I was from Wales, 
but at the time that the strike started I was um, at that point I was living I was living in Hull but but what was going on and how that strike was um, dealt with all of those things kind of really resonated for me so when I had an opportunity I actually worked first of all in um, Powys in Theatre Powys which I loved but I did realise, like, oh, I'm a real South Walian. Like, I didn't really yeah. recognise Theatre Powers is so rural. And I thought, oh, gosh, like, I realised I'm a real South Walian. I'm actually from Cardiff, but when when I came to the Valleys, I, again, I just... I There was a political idea there at the time that I really wanted to, to base my work here. But also, you're right, Kieran, because I'm not from... I'm not from the valleys, and although I've lived here now for years, um, it's important to know that part of what I was doing was listening to other people's voices. I wasn't there to impose my view. I was there to bring out the voices that already existed in that community, and I learned that quite early on. And, and practically, how did you start? Like, what... What steps did you take when you were starting out? So, I was very green. Um, when I first arrived, um, they had suggested spectacles that I might like to work on a script. Mm. And I turned up at the youth club and um, I asked if a group of kids would like to work with me and they kind of wanted to work with me. And um, I got out all the scripts and I could see their faces fall and uh, a couple of them said, oh, I'm not staying. And when I started to ask them why, they said, I don't like reading. And afterwards I talked to the youth worker and she said some of them really struggle with literacy. So mm. I decided, right, that's it. And I thought, all this time I've been devising and making work with my company, I'm just gonna do that. So we, we dumped the scripts and we started to make and create a piece of work. And um, and the piece that we did was actually um, based around, uh, at that point, it was more young women who'd come into the room. And we started to look at like um, the juvenile justice system from their point of view, like right. why girls maybe get treated slightly differently if they're naughty or they don't behave. Or So that was the kind of beginning of, of, um, of that. Um, it was called Poles Apart, and that was kind of the beginning of the journey. And if I'm honest, that sort of bit, which was we'll make and create our own work that we did in 1990, that's that stuck for all mm. time with Spark. After that, we we sometimes would work like with um, maybe like uh, um, we work with a story, a traditional story like the Snow Queen, or we did yeah. an amazing piece called Lysistrata. Um, uh, but we would pull those things apart and we would recreate them and we would make them our own. And I wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. We would do that together. And has that process changed at all as the years have gone on or has the way that you work changed? I think that fundamental thing about making and creating work hasn't. The, ish, the, the thing is now that some of those young people or certainly young people who came through after that 
I'm not the person who's really making and creating the work in the same way now. I mean, a lot of the time I'm raising the money and the profile of the work and the people who are making and creating that work now were those young people who are now very experienced, highly experienced people, people like yourself, Kieran, who went back to uni um, and got, um, you know, did their own training and now um, they, they run Spark and really my job has become more like to support them, to support right. the people's women. I guess, you know, for the young people now seeing people who used to be participants in Spark gives a really powerful thing for the new generation of young people coming through. I think absolutely it's it's critical for people to have role models and to feel like when I started out there wasn't much youth arts in the valleys you know mm. and that's changed um, and now there's a more of an expectation and I love the fact that young people expect something I think mm. that's a great thing it's really important um, I'm good. I want to talk about class and economic deprivation a bit. Um, what are the biggest challenges for you working in an area like Rwanda, which is, has economic challenges? Is, um, and what, what are the challenges for young people in your area for for them to be pursuing a career in theatre and what is your role in kind of supporting artists from your area to, to start on the path towards a professional career? So I think that the um, one of the biggest things is opportunity. You know, mm. that that and also young people not really believing that this is something that they could do or seeing it as something that is for other kinds of young people and I think that that's that's one of the biggest things that's changed by us being present and being present for so long so I would say particularly when I said to you earlier on when I first started out the girls came but the boys didn't because boys in the room that didn't do drama not not in the 1990s it was like, you know, it was not a cool thing to do. And I had to shift that. I mean, some might call it bribery. But I created a project that linked them, um, a group of young men who were seen as the kind of like the kids who would never do drama, who were were kids who, um, you know, um, weren't going to behave. or and, and I said to that group of um, young men and women, but a lot of the young men, if you come and do this trip to Barcelona with me, um, I want you to, I want you to be in a play with me. Um, And we went on a really big journey together. But what happened was that they started to recognise that there was something in it for them. And they started to realise that they, that it gave them some power and confidence and also a, a real sense of community. But also what that did is it broke the stereotype because if those young men were prepared to do drama, then the next group of young men were ready. And now 
I think I think we go through phases, um, but now it's much less likely that a young man in the in the valleys in our community would feel like they couldn't be part of a drama mm. group. Um, but I think the other thing is um, the um, is confidence, and I and I find this fascinating because if you speak to young people in the valleys, they are they are so full of life and talent. Yeah. Um, and sometimes even the people I'm working with now, you would say, oh my God, they're so confident, the way they speak, the way, but sometimes that confidence isn't felt really hard felt inside. Um, there is, there's a perception as, and there's a bit of a danger of consistently telling people you're, this is a deprived area, this is a difficult yeah. area, yeah. that that becomes internalized and people feel like, oh, well, I'm not going to achieve. So part of my thing is just to consistently push that back and say, you you know, enable young people to see that they have this incredible ability, mm-hmm. but also enable that young person who maybe it's not about having incredible ability. It's about first of all they didn't want to bang on the drum and then they will bang on the drum mm. and then after that they will come and they will join in yeah. so so everybody's going to have a different path not everybody's going to come in at the same level and access is the other key thing so our keep what we're doing free yeah anybody can come and with us it's local so you get rid of transport barriers because until we solve transport barriers, and we're going to have that issue unless we, we work with it. So those would be my, like, if you like, my keys. Erin, mm. that's really interesting. Um, something um, that I was speaking to, Hannah, Hannah Lloyd did an episode when you few months back, and she said everything is so Cardiff-centric for her as an emerging artist, you know, it can be difficult financially for people like Hannah to have access to all the opportunities that are available in Cardiff. Um, so is there a feeling, what I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is there a feeling amongst your participants that I, maybe they want to pursue this career, but they don't because they don't feel that it's for them and that they don't feel that they can or that the, the, that the pathways aren't clear. Maybe is a better way of putting it. I think, that, I think that what Hannah says should really be listened to in a huge way. So I think what's happened with, um, with our project is that we have persuaded young people who, because not everybody who comes through Spark is going to want to end up in the creative industries. We're no. not in that sense like a talent spotter, you know. People come because they love it. Yeah. And then there's a, there is a percentage of people who really want to do this for a living. Yeah. And those people who do, I mean, we've adapted, when you were asked about changing, we've adapted. When we first started, it kind of finished at 18. And then we realised there were young people, some of them who were would say like, you know, they've gone to uni, but they come back 
and they think um and 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 it's the summer holidays and they can't necessarily go on expensive trips abroad or whatever yeah. they don't necessarily want to go back to the pub so they want projects that they can work on and that's why we set up spark plus because no. that was a 16 plus project to enable young people to continue to engage with us but i think that what hannah's talking about we've talked recently about the needs of particularly emerging artists because at one point kieran i'd managed to persuade the arts council to have we had a, a number of apprenticeships right. so even though there wasn't a huge amount of them it was enough for people to feel that they could come to us and have some additional um experience yeah but that that funding stream stopped and it's been really hard to find a way to re-establish it so we hannah and i and that age group of people have been yeah. talking about the need for something else and we have this idea that we're starting to develop about um spark associates so um potentially having a program for those emerging artists which will give voice to the fact that they need to be able to make work mm. in their own communities so that's, that's something that we're interested in exploring that sounds really exciting and it sounds like there's a lot of potential there for emerging artists and i want to talk now about um the partnerships that you've had um, in recent years, one in particular with the WMC, what kind of impact does a partnership like that have on the young people that you work with? And when you're seeking out these partnerships, what do you look for in partner organisations? So we've got, I'll, I'll talk about the World's Millennium Centre, that's a really mm. important partnership. Yeah. I think it'd be worth touching on Tate as well, because that's also been, that's been yeah. the other big partnership. Um, so um, alongside Wales Millennium Centre, I would say that the, the partnership with the Wales Millennium Centre, um, which has been um, this, the partnership called Together Stronger, um, has been transformational um, in part for the young people but also I think that it's had an impact on how um, the Wales Millennium Centre has chosen to organise itself and okay. even with all the hardships of Covid and we know that the Wales Millennium Centre has had a really uh, tough time that's been quite fascinating in a way because you know um, futures can be reversed and our our ability to be able to have conversations and de help develop that partnership has been really key. So one of the things that was really important with that partnership is we didn't start with the money. Okay. We, we, we decided that we would work with the creative learning team for over a year, just meeting and facilitating work and ideas and thinking together. Now that was quite privileged because we had our core funding to be able to do that, but also we made the time and space for it. And I think that came off the back of the fact that previous to that, um, it was a really good learning experience for us that other um, partnerships that we had have been a bit driven by there's a pot of funding. Okay. And then yeah. 
And actually then you don't have time to establish the real values and the real reasons for why you're working together. But for the young people in particular, I mean, one thing is it's increased our capacity. So just, you know, I'm not a big number cruncher. Right. Um, the group I'm talking about with uh, pencil breaks, there's only, there's two young um a young man and woman who come to that group who are shielding. Yeah. Um, so it's not a huge group. But this has enabled us to reach, which is really important, um, 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 over 350 additional young people to, to work, to, to be involved wow. in our work. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and and a, a lot of those young people were, you know, some were not known to Spark before. Some have stayed and continue to be involved with us. Some have come to a life pack for the first time and we've interacted with them and we've got to know them. So at different levels of engagement. Yeah. Um, but I think the other thing is, is that the we formed a steering group um, and we and and we took the decision that we were going to really hand over the leadership of that project to the young people. But that right. was a process. And it's a co-creative model. So it's not like we are not part of that conversation. Sometimes I think, you know, people go crazy for it's young people led. But actually, we we lead with them and we critique each other. I and that's important to me. It's a, I suppose it's about you putting the structures in place to enable that youth-led nature. Because if... The structure of the project isn't there. You can't hand over to the young people and give them the lead on the project. Is that what you're... Exactly, and I think the other thing is is that the group that we have is not necessarily... Sometimes you have these forums and the danger is, is that the young people who are on the forum are not necessarily particularly inclusive. So the mm. only thing for this was that we wanted a cross range of young people from across our centres. Yeah. But everyone could come. And actually what happened was interesting because they, the young people just self-selected themselves. And we had young people on that partnership, on that steering group, who don't really necessarily talk. Um, right. And then we have young people on that partnership who are very vocal. But the important thing is, is that they want to be there. Um, and that reflects our values that that don't make assumptions about the people who are in that room. Yeah. So I think that also gives a bit of a challenge to leadership, not to always see leadership in the eyes. You know, so we don't have a chair. We don't have a secretary. Maybe at some point we will have those things. Um, but but we're not trying to make it in the eyes of an adult model. We're trying to work out what kind of group the young people want in order to to run them run themselves. But also, we're we're not lying and saying it's all down to the young people. We're saying we're in a process together, yeah. And it's an, and it's equal. And and that that's so important, I guess. That the young people don't feel that they're being dictated to. They feel that they have a stake in the project and, and that what they say matters and is of importance. Absolutely, and sometimes it can seem, you know, so like, like for the life hack. Yes. <laughs> in the first year, you can ask poor Alice 
<laughs> we spent so long looking for the right band and it had to be hip and we didn't want to look like you know because it was early days and we had only just started working with the young people and right, you know yeah. we went through and we tried all these people and they didn't necessarily turn up and the second year the young people say we don't we don't want a band <laughs> we, we want a silent disco we don't even want a band you know now that was because like he, like the people who come up with the model had looked at Cardiff, they looked at um, London and these hip yeah. cool events. You know, our life pack is like a creative industries event where the young people meet with creative professionals. Mm. The the silent disco was like the the biggest ever success. And also it allowed us so they had young people from Cardiff, um, alongside young people from um from the valleys alongside the staff and we all created our own channels and you could switch to your own channel of course you listen to your channel but then you switched over to the other so they were just so much more creative about how they went about um, yeah what worked fantastic it sounds amazing um in terms of uh well sorry I've, I'd like to talk about the, about the Left Without Me project um, and what, what the process of devising the piece was like. Um, how, and how important was your connection to the BAME communities in Cardiff and the Valleys? And what, were the, what was the difference in experiences between the communities in Cardiff and those in the valleys. So I think that that project was a really, really special project. I wasn't the director of that project, right. Gemma Fraser Jones and Claire Hathaway were the people who um, were responsible for that group. Um, so it was it was their work with the young people. Um, but but that was a project that we did. It was it it was the um, our third third year at Tate. Yeah. Um, so they they did this project. Um, so we've been partners with Tate Exchange, and that's been a very important project for us as well, because because we got to the stage where we felt that the danger with the valleys is that we continue to be invisible, and what we discovered by going to London is we caught people's attention. Um, and we made ourselves more visible also in Wales and also in our own communities. So, um, but we also worked with amazing collaborative partners when we were in Tate. So this, that year, one of the things that was really important for the partnership is that we went on an amazing journey ourselves. When we first went to Tate, as you can imagine, we yeah. were really nervous and we were like, oh gosh, we have to get a real artist to work with us. And it took a long time for us to realize that actually the most important thing was that we told our stories, but also we engaged with the public. Mm-hmm. Alongside that story, um, that relationship with young people from BAME communities in Cardiff was embedded into the Together Stronger um, relationship. Okay. So Left Without Me didn't just happen because those young people, we got together for that project young people um, who were involved in that project are also on our steering group. 
So that... And those people have been involved with us throughout creating, um, in creating Together Stronger in the Valleys, okay. but also in talking about what they need in Cardiff. And really, to be honest with you, Kieran, when we, we came back to really look and review Together Stronger from a strategic point of view, but by that I mean the things that the young people had clearly spoken to us, then that's one of the things that was most important to them, was that they had the opportunity to meet young people from different communities and different cultures yeah. and work together with them. Mm. And I think, um, so really Left Without Me was the culmination of that experience to date. Um, and what was amazing about that piece was that they told a combination of stories. Um, the theme for that year was movement. Okay. Um, so they looked at these really simple stories around arriving and leaving um, and and this idea of kind of, if you like, fight and flight, why do we stay somewhere and why do we go? Yeah. And of course that brought to mind things like um, deportation, and but it also brought to mind stories about why you might eventually get to go to university and be the first person to go so what does that feel like mm. when you arrive what i loved about the piece which might challenge other people's view of what should or shouldn't happen but that group of young people took the decision to mix who told who whose story so That's they didn't necessarily yeah. yeah and i mean there are people who might argue that but that that was a clear decision from the group um, I suppose yeah. on, on the one hand you it's empowering to give people the agency to tell their own stories but on the other hand it's interesting to see those stories from a perspective that you wouldn't ordinarily so yeah that was an interesting choice creatively and also one of the big things that I probably haven't said enough about the work that sparked us is that although we often talk about our lives and our experiences, most of our work is really in fiction, in story. Okay. We took a decision quite early on, I did, and then my team have really run with that and developed it, that, that when we tell a story that isn't necessarily our own story, we will be in it. We we right. need to trust sometimes to the narrative and the story. So we don't tell so much, if you like, real stories. And part of that as well is to avoid that feeling that constantly you're putting young people in the spotlight and they can only talk about their own experience. So yeah. the stories that we talked about touched on our lives, but they were fictional characters. And that's also true for the mm. little piece that I told you with Sharaban. Yeah. So we still talk about ourselves. We talk about how that's like my nan, that's like my brother, um, but but we choose mostly to tell stories that are fictional stories that have a real sense of truth about them. So um, there was a there was a beautiful, powerful story in there about modern slavery. So obviously that wasn't our story, but one of the young women. Um, in that group had been to Liverpool and she was really passionate about telling that story. Yeah. But what we found 
really interesting. And if you talk to Jason Camilleri, who I'm sure will will be on your list. I, I um, need to email him, but he'd be a great guest. <laughs> um, is um, that that what what Jason was really struck by was that the young people from Cardiff how sh- surprised they were by some of the difficulties that the young people in the valleys encountered. Mm. So, so the young people in in the valleys really got to understand about racism and how that impacts on everyday life for some of the young people. Yeah. But the young people in Cardiff were really shocked when they found that there was just nowhere for young people in the valleys to go. Once they'd gone mm. to the shop, there was nowhere else to go. They couldn't go to a restaurant. They couldn't go to a. Um, they couldn't go shopping as much, mm. you know. And they were really surprised at some of the experiences that they encountered here. So they are very powerful when they tell those stories. And I, I want to talk a little bit about process, your process, um, in terms of creating this work. Does it always start with the young people at the centre of whatever project? Is. Do you always start with the the thoughts and the ideas of the young people and then develop that and shape that? I mean, do you have a process that you tend to use that works on each project? My process, but my team, obviously, they, they have developed, but I think they would probably... Um, bail out the central thing that I'm saying here is is that that we all have to work on something that matters. Okay. So so if that doesn't mean it can't be funny. Like today it was quite funny <laughs> talking to a group and and it was like because we're talking about serious things, you know, like geez, like we know with Shakespeare, right? Yeah. You know, we can flip between tragedy and comedy. So yeah. so um but but when I say matters, it's if if the person leading the group is thinking they're working on something that's this really not coming through to me, or the young people are thinking whatever you're doing is not really working for me. So again, poor Jeff, he's getting really quoted today, but he's been a important. He he's been so important in terms of that process. So. So um, very early on, I loved this idea that he introduces about my story, their story. So the beginning of our process is that maybe I will bring something into the room, um, a possible kind of offer, yeah. or maybe a young person will bring something into the room. Um, but we'll offer sometimes quite a strong stimulus, and then yeah. it's about teasing out with them is that is that working for you? So this gap in between um, my story and their story is like how how we adapt and change in the process to really get to that area in the middle that's really exciting. Mm. And I think one of the things that I would say about early work that I did was some of the most interesting work is when you don't rule out the contradictions in it. Right. So I, I'm fascinated in work that throws up for people the fact that they're going to have to ask themselves a question because mm. 
the question isn't just being presented to them. So I'm not so interested in issue-based telling stories. I'm interested in stories that make you have to think, oh, I'm going to have to struggle and come up with something there. So I, when I'm working with young people, I wouldn't tell them that, but I would encourage them to kind of like introduce some difficulty maybe into that scenario. So, you know, if everything's going great for the character, what happens if this happens? Like, let's try and really work out the complexity of something. Do you know what's really interesting? Is that Sarah Jones said something almost identical to it. That's not a huge surprise to me, Jewett. In terms of of the issues coming out and how they, they show themselves. Um, which shows, yeah, I suppose you want to talk about these things, but you want to do it in a way that feels dramatically viable and not too preachy or on the nose. And how do you shape the material that is created by the young people in a way that makes it dramatically viable and tells the type of story that you want to put out there. I suppose it's a skill dramaturgically, isn't it? Absolutely, and also, like, sometimes it can be quite oblique. Right. So sometimes the, the stories that the young people have produced, particularly with some of the, um, you know, because I say that the, the people who come and work with us are not all because we felt that's important in terms of us. So they don't all come through the Valley's Kids Project. So right. we've also encouraged people who are really fascinated and drawn to our work will come and they will apply and they will usually have kind of come and shown a real interest or come and work with us a little bit yeah. and then they will apply and they'll have a real idea about us. But some of the people who've worked with us, the, the pieces they've produced have been quite, um, you know, curious if you like there and and one of the things that I like about working with young people is don't always assume that they're going to want to talk about themselves yeah like young people are a lot more interesting than that um you know when people are obsessed with young people telling stories about young people but young people want to tell stories about all kinds of things so yeah yeah that's that's a really powerful point we are uh, coming to the end, um, but I wanted to ask you about directing young performers as opposed to directing professional actors and what are the different challenges that the two demographics bring and do you have to adapt a different process when you're working with each group? Now, I'm going to have to be really truthful here. So I might rule myself out. I probably need to revisit this, to be honest with you, Kieran. Right. <laughs> because, because if I'm honest, I'm abs- I think I'm pretty terrible at directing adults. Um, <laughs> that, Why do you say that? <laughs> and I'm, 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 if I blow my own trumpet, I'm pretty good at directing young people. And I think partly it is that... We, we have to understand as well that young people are at a particular stage of development mm. and probably that really suits my temperament 
and the way I like to work. Okay. So I, I haven't done loads of directing with adults. And when I have, I haven't been particularly good at it. Right. Um, because young people are so quick and adaptable in the way that they think about stuff. Um, and they and actually, they're incredibly rigorous. And no offence to adults. Um, but they but young people take things on really, you know, just your brain is working at such a level. Um, and I mean, when I say that, I mean all young people of all kind of backgrounds yeah. and situations. Um, I, I temperamentally, um, I, ha- I think, I'm of the opinion that youth arts work is a very specific way of working. Okay. So I don't, I, I think that it's, uh, that, that's the thing I've made a bit of a case for in my research is that there's a particular skill set around youth arts work. So the other thing that you talked about earlier was like my impatience about wanting to get on with another process. Yeah. And the great thing about youth arts work is, as you know, we make something, we create it, we probably do it about three or four times and then we're back on the, we're back on yeah. the process again. And that suits me down to the ground. And the other thing that, that that really suits me about the way that young people work is you won't be able to work over a long period of time. So you're probably going to get a two-week rehearsal period. Yeah. So it's a really pacey way of working. And again, that really suits me. So um, my I think that those are some of the differences about the the discipline of youth arts work. I think it's a slightly different discipline. And I don't think that young people necessarily will sustain, um, especially the kind of young people I'm interested in working with, who are not trained and who um, have just literally bowled up at the project. They will take rigor and pace at a very fast process um, all day long but then they will be in process with me for sometimes up to a year and they're comfortable with that right and um, I'm comfortable with that but is it, I, I <laughs> so I don't know how I'd be if I had to be in the room for weeks and weeks is it a case of this project takes as long as it takes to develop and we allow it the time it needs to develop and then when it's ready we'll show it and is there less pressure on those time constraints? I feel like there's two different phases. So when right. I when I wrote my um, research looking at youth arts work, I kind of interrogated my own practice, which was a really useful thing to do yeah. because before that I would endlessly talk about things and it made me have to really think about it. And um, what I did is I realised that there were really like two phases very much more so one was like the real devising which could be exactly like you said quite a sort of endless process and I would be in a different place with that I'd be quite equitable and I'd be well hopefully completely equitable and we were working in the way that we talked about in that co-created way yeah when I go into the theatre space I think that's when the slightly more bossy Miranda comes out (laughs) because then I become the director Mm. So in that phase, I'm working, I work, I really work the actors. 
So that's my process. I think my team are probably a little bit more gentle than me, um, but I, I really work that, that I really work that route because what I've what I've learned is that young people, even young people who can be highly vulnerable, will really take that mm. and meet that challenge. Absolutely, absolutely, and they're not quite so fussy no. as older people. <laughs> Uh, the last. Sorry, sorry. No, I mean it's it's out there now, so you can't take it back. Um, the last thing I'm gonna ask you before I let you go is, um, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in the creative industries, especially at a time where it's quite difficult for people who are just emerging. Yeah, it's a very, very tough time, and I wouldn't take anything away from that at the moment. And I don't think all the responsibility does lie on the young people. I think it relies on all of us in the industry to recognise what's going on um, and to support emerging artists. So that's the first thing I would say in terms of the whole industry, is that I think that um, emerging artists have every right to make that point to the industry do you really know how tough it is and i think what's great about that is if you guys um or you know people who are coming through can get together and and get that voice out there together but if it's about the individual it's a real cliche but i absolutely believe it's take every opportunity and i think hearing what you've done in doing this is is a genius thing and it's a it's a model of what you do you say right it's not quite happening at the moment so I'm going to make it and create it myself and I'm going to you know beg and borrow some favors and and see if I can get something off the ground Um, and the other thing is take every opportunity that comes your way so if somebody has put you up for a course or there's something going on get yourself in the room Mm. and and keep knocking on that door and if you write to somebody there are a lot of busy people out there don't take that no like don't take that first oh they didn't get back to me uh, my third student said that to me and I'm like so it was the director of National Theatre Wales like they don't get back to me either so <laughs> right away yeah. like so, so just write again and um, and keep knocking and, yeah. on that door Keep going until you get I think the other thing is wherever you can practice your craft. So be mm. curious and be interested and and don't forget to look out there and see what else people are doing. Um, you know, because there's so much that you can find out if you're prepared to be hungry and curious, you know. Thank you so much. It's been amazing talking to you. Thank you. Um for, for spending this hour with me. It's been really, really interesting to hear more about the stuff you've done. Thanks, Kieran. It's such a pleasure and it's such a delight to see you and um, a brilliant idea. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel privileged to have been asked to, to be part of it. And thanks to everyone for listening. I will catch you on the next episode of In Lockdown With. I'm not sure who my guest is going to be yet, but for now it's bye for me, and thanks to Miranda for being a fantastic guest. You're welcome. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.